Hi, I'm Dr. Frida, and you're listening to ADA Live. Yo. Hi, let's roll. Let's go. Hi, everybody. On behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and the ADA National Network, I want to welcome you to this episode of ADA Live. I'm Barry Whaley. I'm the director here at the Southeast ADA Center. Listening audience, if you have questions about the Americans with Disabilities Act, you can use the online form anytime at adalive.org, or you can call the Southeast ADA Center at 404 541 9001. As a reminder, those calls are free and they're confidential. March is National Kidney Month. Nearly 15% of us live with kidney disease and 240,000 Americans are living with a kidney transplant. Let's look at how kidney disease and other related health conditions like high blood pressure or diabetes can be a disability that affects your rights under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Joining us today, our guest is Dr. Frida Fisher, a board-certified physician and nephrologist who works with the Midtown Nephrology Practice in Atlanta, Georgia. She is also a member of the Georgia National Kidney Foundation Board of Directors. Our host for today's episode is Dan Kessler. Couldn't be more appropriate. Dan currently serves as the Interim Director for the Association of Programs for Rural Independent Living, or APRIL. From 1989 until 2022, Dan served as the Executive Director of Disability Rights and Resources, which is a center for independent living that serves people with disabilities in Birmingham, Alabama. Disability Rights and Resources has been the Southeast ADA Center affiliate since 1994. And I say it's appropriate that Dan is joining us today because last year, Dan had a successful kidney transplant. So Dan will share his own experiences living with kidney disease and having a successful kidney transplant. So Dan, Dr. Frieda, welcome to the show. And Dan, I'll turn it over to you. Well, thanks so much, Barry. It's really great to be back here with you. We had a long relationship over the years, and so it's great to see some old friends. I really appreciate the opportunity to host this discussion and to share my experiences with kidney disease. Dr. Frieda, it's great to have you here talk about the needs and the rights of people with kidney disease and other related health conditions like diabetes and, and high blood pressure. March is National Kidney Month, and chronic kidney disease affects more than one in seven U.S. adults, an estimated 37 million Americans. Dr. Frieda, you're a doctor of nephrology working in Atlanta. Can you tell us about your work and explain what nephrology is for those who may not be familiar with the term? So I am a nephrologist, a kidney and a high blood pressure specialist. So yes, I study kidney disease and I spend a great deal of my practice trying to prevent people from having kidney disease. So your kidneys are those two organs that are down in the lower back and the flanks, and they are absolutely necessary for filtering the blood and getting rid of excess toxins, excess water that comes out in the way of urine. Unless you have at least one functioning kidney, you cannot live. So the kidneys are absolutely essential for life. You cannot live without the kidney functioning unless you have a replacement such as dialysis or a kidney transplant. So what I do 
is I try to help people to prevent kidney disease. I help to diagnose the number one and two and the top causes of kidney disease for patients whose kidneys do fail. I try to get them a transplant. And if they don't get a transplant, then they have to have the dialysis and I'm their dialysis doctor. And what are the main causes of chronic kidney disease or CKD? So there are many causes of chronic kidney disease, the CKD. The number one cause is diabetes. The number two cause is high blood pressure. And it's really frustrating because these are two diseases that people can walk around with and have no idea. They can have no symptoms or be asymptomatic. But there are also some other causes like lupus, or you can have a genetic component such as a polycystic kidney or autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease. There's also something called FSG, focal segmental glomerulosclerosis. The list is longer than my arm. There are also some medicines or some other underlying medical conditions like septic shock or even COVID that can cause kidney mm-hmm. failure. So the mm-hmm. list is long, but diabetes and high blood pressure are the top two causes. So what are some of the symptoms that people experience from kidney disease? That's a great question because the problem is is that oftentimes the symptoms are nada, nothing. They'll be walking around with kidney disease and have no idea. But when it gets to the point where you are having symptoms, you can have leg swelling or like foot and ankle swelling or edema. You can also have fatigue. And that's pretty nonspecific because many things can cause fatigue, but kidney failure or kidney disease certainly can. You can get issues with easy bruising. So like you could be brushing your teeth and your gums may bleed easily, or you may bump lightly against something and you have bruising. You can also have confusion if the kidney disease is very far gone or a decrease in the amount of urine you put out. And if you're not making great urine and you're holding on to that fluid, you can get the fluid in your lungs and develop shortness of breath. So who would you say is at most risk for kidney disease? You know, are there certain populations that are group or groups that are more likely to have kidney disease? Absolutely, Dan. And anyone can get kidney disease. It doesn't matter the race. It doesn't matter the gender. Anyone can get it. But the cultures or the races that seem to be at highest risk Black people or people of African descent, Mm -hmm. Latinos or Hispanics, also American Indians or Native Americans are at high risk. And this is just based on the numbers. And there are many reasons for that, which we can get into, but these are the, the populations which tend to be at higher risk. And I mentioned that diabetes and high blood pressure are the top two causes. So anyone who's walking around with diabetes, especially if it's poorly controlled or high blood pressure, and you'll note that there's an overlap many Black people are disproportionately affected with diabetes and with high blood pressure. And so that's where you get that intersection of the Black people and some Latinos having high risk. Also, people who don't have access to great health care. A lot of times, if you are someone who's just working hard, trying to make money for your family, and you don't go and get those preventive health care services to even know Mm -hmm. if you're at risk for kidney disease, then that puts you at the highest of the risk for having CKD. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, related to, to high blood pressure, you had written a book. Yes. And it's called Under Pressure, A Guide to Controlling High Blood Pressure. So why is high blood pressure such an important health issue? Oh my goodness. High blood pressure is such an important health issue because not only is it the number two cause of kidney failure, it's a leading cause for heart disease, which is the number one killer among men and women. It's also a leading cause for strokes and just for a poor quality of life. You can have high blood pressure that can lead to blindness and it can lead to many other 
disability. So high blood pressure is a center for many things. And what I found, and of course, I am a kidney and a high blood pressure specialist, I found that high blood pressure can be so manageable and preventable, but people just need the proper tools. So in my book, Under Pressure, A Guide to Controlling High Blood Pressure, not only do I talk about treating high blood pressure with medications, but I also talk about using food as medicine, lifestyle changes as medicine, and I approach treating high blood pressure in an integrative fashion. I also am very sensitive to cultures because when I was a new doctor and I thought I had all the answers, a patient might come in and say, you know what, you know, my blood pressure is high again. I don't know what. And I talk to them and I say, okay, well, you're not doing this or you're not eating that. And I'm kind of pretty much scolding the patient, right? Mm -hmm. As a young Mm -hmm. 20-something know-it-all. But then I started learning the reasons behind people being non-compliant. If you are a person who has limited income and you have a choice between feeding your family or taking your blood pressure medicine, you will likely choose to feed your family. And if you have limited income and you don't necessarily have access to organic vegetables or the freshest of foods, then you may be eating salty prepackaged foods. And so I talked to people in this book about ways to manage even if you have financial limitations. And I really stress the importance of how if you don't take care of your health and your high blood pressure, you won't be around to take care of that family. And so I approach it in a really well-rounded 360-degree fashion in my book, Under Pressure. I imagine that also plays out in terms of individuals who've, who've had transplants and then the potential outcomes that they may experience. Access, access to good quality quality food, and some of the other factors you had just mentioned. Exactly, because many people don't understand that the transplant is really just the beginning of a new journey. You have to be able to afford the medications, which are not cheap for transplant. You have to be aware of what other medications may interact with transplant medications and send the blood pressure up. Certain transplant medications, especially if the the dose or the level in your body becomes too high, can cause high blood pressure. And even after getting the transplant, The battle is not over because if you have high blood pressure, it can affect that transplant and lead you right back into kidney failure. And Mm so the high blood Mm -hmm. pressure discussion is ever going. Yeah, we just can't assume that people necessarily have the resources uh, available in order to have a successful outcome. So I've been diagnosed more than 20 years ago. I was diagnosed with kidney disease around the same time or actually a little bit after that, uh, two of my sisters had also been diagnosed with kidney disease. And so I think that led us to think that there may be something there that, that, that may be genetic. So my wife, who's, who does a lot of research, uh, she's actually a, a retired dietitian. And so she did a tremendous amount of research. And so after doing extensive research, she identified a doctor from Wake Forest who had done a lot of work, uh, Dr. Blyer from Wake Forest. He does research on rare kidney diseases. So we did the genetic testing, and sh- which, by the way, can be very expensive. You talk about barriers. Uh, this would be one barrier that, that people may face. He, he, in fact, confirmed that I did have a, a, a rare kidney disease. It was, it, it was progressive. And so it's been, you know, so my, so I've sort of been watching those lab values. I'm, you know, I'm sure you do this with your patients all the time. You just sort of track where the disease is headed. And so. And so mine got to the point where I was eligible to go on a transplant list. And so I was told I'd have at least a five, probably most likely a five-year wait for a transplant. And so as it, told, as it turned out, I didn't have to wait that long. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a call um, 
three days after I retired from my job in Birmingham, I got a call from UAB telling me that I had, uh, uh, they, had a, they had a kidney for me. So I had several concerns going into this, uh, Dr. Greta, and, and I don't know if your patients experienced similar concerns or I guess fears. One is the possibility of rejection because when I went into it, went into this, I did have, my kidneys were still functioning. I had not yet gone on dialysis. And so there was that possibility of rejection and also the side effects of the anti-rejection medications, as you know, are extremely powerful. And also, you know, the, having a, a compromised immune system, especially during time of COVID. However, everything's going pretty well. I, I take precautions, I, I wear masks, I, I avoid crowds and I'm still reluctant to fly. Uh, and so I've been fortunate though throughout, throughout this entire adventure. So far, we've not experienced any signs of rejection. I've had excellent medical care at UAB. I, I, as I said, I didn't have to go on dialysis, so I was extremely fortunate there. And I've also had a lot of support from my family and friends, and most of all, from my wife, Gail, who's been with me every step of the way. So that family support is so important, as you know. Yeah, it sounds like everyone needs a Gail. They need a Gail like your wife. You probably mm-hmm. need a Gail like Oprah's best friend also. Everyone exactly. There you go. <laughs> yes, yes. I'll have to tell her. I'll have to tell her. Yeah, yeah. You hit on on so many any many very important points. So what you had was a preemptive transplant. You never had to go on dialysis. You were able to go straight from being in an advanced stage of kidney disease to getting the transplant, which is excellent. It, it can help increase your survival. But the fears that you mentioned are very valid. And yes, my patients do have those fears. But when you look at the pros and the cons, the benefits versus the risks, then every time, you know, as long as the physicians feel that it is relevant. Relatively, relatively safe to get a transplant, the benefits of having a kidney transplant outweigh the risk as far as lifestyle, not having to have dialysis either at home or in the dialysis center, as far as survival, quality of life, all of it, the transplant. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. as far as you sharing about having some type of a, a hesitancy to flying, that's real because yes, every time I go in the airplane, my family and I look like just oddities with our masks, less and less people are having, are wearing the masks and there are illnesses beyond just COVID. We still have all the other respiratory illnesses. And so, yes, when you take the transplant medicines, the medicines are excellent in preventing you from rejecting the transplant, but yes, they also do suppress or push down your own immune system, making you more vulnerable, but you're taking all of the proper precautions and having a healthy diet full of vitamins and nutrients will help that as well. But I'm really excited for you on your journey and having been blessed enough to have this transplant. The other thing you mentioned, Dan, that's really important is the family history. I have many patients who culturally are just very private and they don't Mm -hmm. even talk about their illness with other people. That is a big no-no because our secrets can make us sick. If you talk to other family members like siblings, cousins, and say, hey, I'm going through this, I have kidney disease, then you will allow the other family members to go to their physicians and find out what's going on with their kidneys and if there's something that they can do to prevent. And so the fact that your siblings and you share what's going on for the ones who have not been affected by kidney disease, I'm quite sure that they're very vigilant and talk to their physicians and doing all preventive things that are within their power. And so I love that you hit on that point, the importance of sharing the information with family, going in, doing the preventive things and getting that preemptive transplant. Yeah. 
Thank you, Dan and Dr. Frieda, ADA Live listening audience. If you have questions about this topic or any other ADA Live topic, you can submit your questions online at adalive.org, or you can call the Southeast ADA Center at 1-404-541-9001. And we're going to pause now for a word from this episode's sponsor. High blood pressure is a risk factor in acquiring kidney disease. Dr. Frieda Fisher's new book, Under Pressure, will help you take charge of your health by providing you with a step-by-step -step guide to lower blood pressure naturally. The book is written in a way that readers will easily understand how high blood pressure works and the dangers it poses to our health. Under Pressure can be purchased at major book retailers. Welcome back to ADA Live. This is your host, Dan Kessler. And before the break, we were talking with Dr. Frida, a nephrologist who treats uh, kidney-related diseases. Uh, we talked about the signs and symptoms of kidney disease and related to health conditions, who's at most risk, and how to prevent further damage to your health. We discussed the barriers some kidney disease patients face when trying to get the medical care they need. And we also talked about my personal experience with kidney disease now, let's talk more specifically about patients with legal rights, including the ADA, or related issues. Dr. Frieda, as you know, some kidney patients face problems when they're working or trying to return to work after a kidney transplant, or when they need to take medical leave for treatment, such as dialysis. And what do you hear from your patients who want to return to work after hospitalization or medical leave? especially those on dialysis or those who've had kidney transplants, what kidney-related issues might have on the job. Dan, the greatest fear that my patients have is a loss of independence. They don't mm -hmm. want having kidney disease or going in for a transplant to make them lose their jobs or lose the ability to, to take care of themselves or their families. And so many patients will sadly try to push, push, push and postpone the care that they need for fear that jobs will not respect the kidney disease and will somehow try to push them off to the side. And so what I make sure is that I'm very proactive in my discussions with the patients and I let them know their rights and what the jobs can and cannot do. And I'm very vocal. I write letters very early on without violating HIPAA, but I make it very mm -hmm. clear that I am the patient's physician. They're under my care for a very specific disability. And I thank them so kindly in advance for their cooperation. So the first thing is that patients need to learn to advocate for themselves and to not be afraid to speak up and to understand that even if you have kidney disease, that does not mean you have to stop working. But yes, the fear of losing independence is what my patients go through. And so for my patients, especially my, my vibrant working patients, or even the ones who may be retired, but who want to have an active lifestyle, for those who are on dialysis and don't have a transplant yet, I recommend that they do the PD, the peritoneal dialysis. Mm -hmm. And that's that dialysis that they can do at home. They can have their own schedule. So they can wake up in the morning, go to work, go to grandchildren's soccer games, go to plays. And then at night, they can hook themselves up to the PD, the peritoneal dialysis mm -hmm. machine. And they have some control, some autonomy that way. They can also travel more easily with the PD, where if someone spontaneously says, hey, let's go to Vegas for the weekend, then they mm -hmm. can call ahead. They can send their, their PD fluids, their dialysis fluids to Vegas. They can pack up their machine, which fits in the overhead of an airplane, and they can go. And so 
basically, I try to present modalities that will help them to have more active, independent lives. But even still, sometimes they may have some situations at work where they need to take a break and do certain things with dialysis in the middle of the day. Or they may get fatigued and have to have perhaps more of a snack break to make sure that they keep their blood sugar up, they keep their energy up. And so I make sure they know that I am that mama bear watchdog and I have their backs mm-hmm. to make sure that their jobs allow them to do so because it is their right. They are protected as far as their health and being able to work. And when it comes to transplant, now that's the real kicker because of course, when you get a transplant, you'll need some time off to heal. And there are some jobs, if you're not watching them, who will try to write you up for something unrelated. And And so I tell patients, don't try to sneak and do things quietly. Be up front. Yes, you want to protect your privacy. You also want to protect your rights. And if a job says, hey, I didn't know you had a disability or hey, I didn't know you had kidney disease, then they might be able to get away with stepping on your rights. And so you have to be upfront and let them know, hey, these are my needs. These are my rights and have your physician who's your advocate. Um, I think one of the most important things that I got a chance to do just recently was to help to get the Giving the Gift of Life Act passed right here in Georgia. And on behalf of the National Kidney Foundation, for which I am a board member here in Atlanta, Georgia, I got to go and to speak on behalf of this Giving the Gift of Life Act, which did pass. It did pass in our Georgia State Senate. And what it did was it allowed protection for patients getting transplants and for living donors. Because as mm. you know, there are some cases where insurance companies will deny a living kidney donor or they'll deny them insurance, life insurance, or they'll increase their premiums if they're a living donor. They can't do that now, not here, thanks to that Mm -hmm. bill. Or if you're someone who got a transplant and you need to miss certain days of work, your job might be at jeopardy, but now there are certain protections in place. Yeah. So these are some of the things that we do here to advocate for our patients, but most importantly, patients have to understand their worth and know that they must advocate for themselves as well. You have touched on so many different issues, Dr. Frida. In the legislation, the gift of life in Georgia, is that is it sounds to me like that could be a piece of model legislation for other states who would be interested in in passage. Is there somebody they could contact about that? Yes, yes. And for us, the National Kidney Foundation is, you know, we were the connection there, but there was actually one of our, our local state senators who donated his kidney to his son who had kidney mm-hmm. failure. And as he shared, he's someone who had access, he had, you know, uh, privilege and he did just fine. But once he learned of, you know, the different hoops he would have had to jump through if he didn't have the ability to be off of work and still be able to Mm -hmm. take care of his family, if he did not have the resources to know physicians and to know transplant doctors, if he did not know how to maneuver and manipulate through the system in order to get this transplant for his son, he just started thinking, wow. You know, if I didn't have my kind of a job or if I didn't have my resources, then my kid couldn't have gotten a transplant. And, you know, if I was scared to go to the appointments that were needed for me to be able to donate to my kid because I was scared I was going to lose my job, I couldn't have donated. So then even in coming from a place of privilege, he saw all of the problems with the system. And so he was the one who initiated the bill here. And we can share that information. Okay. And you touched also on the... uh something that is so important, and that is autonomy and independence. You know, coming from an ind- independent living background, that's something that that we experience all the time. And so, so I, I really appreciate you bringing that up. And a term that we would use uh, would be consumer control. 
where people can take control of their lives. And I think that sounds like something that you're doing with your patients to give individuals the most control over their, over their lives and their situations. Absolutely. We all want to have a sense of control and especially for the things that we can't control like illnesses and diseases, we want to grab one and take the reins for those things that we can. And so we can have our fullest, happiest, most complete lives. So, so after many patients return to work after kidney transplants, are they, or they work during dialysis treatment, or they may be quote, qualified individuals with disabilities under the Americans with Disabilities Act. They may need to change their job tasks or work environments that make it possible for them to perform their job. These changes are called reasonable accommodations. If you're a person with a qualified disability who works for a company with 15 or more employees, the ADA requires your employer to make, quote, reasonable accommodations that you might need to perform your jobs. What are some examples, and maybe you may have touched on some of those, but what are some examples of job accommodations, say, for somebody on dialysis or somebody who's had a kidney transplant they may need in returning to work or to keep working? Very good. Yes. Reasonable accommodations. And of course, Dan, it's going to vary from person to person. But one thing that I think many people may take for granted is having access to water breaks, depending on the type of job that you do. I have one transplant patient who works for a power company where literally he is climbing poles. It's a very physical job. And so the access to water or needing to go sit down, take a break, cool down, it's not necessarily obvious and everyone doesn't need the same access. But a reasonable accommodation for him is that when he's anticipating that it's time for water or that he needs to get down and break and cool off, it's important that that transplanted kidney be hydrated, that he does not allow himself to be dehydrated or he can lose the kidney. And so a lot of people have this, this thing, okay, no pain, no gain, work, 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 you know, mm-hmm, when you put yourself mm-hmm. to the end, that really means that you're a valuable employee. But for him, a reasonable accommodation is specified water breaks and time to rest. He needs that. Also, the same thing could hold true in an office setting or in a place where you're sitting and, and patients have to be in front of the computer and all of their, their, their typings and their strokes and how many minutes they've worked, that's mm-hmm. being calculated to the T. They may need a break for making sure they are able to take the water and to use the restroom as frequently as they need to. Lifting. For patients who have transplants or even for patients on dialysis who have an AVF, an arterial venous fistula, Mm -hmm. which is the Mm -hmm. dialysis access, they can't lift a lot. And so I have patients who have uh, physical labor where they're lifting packages or they're moving or, you know, there's a certain amount of physicality that's required. For them, a reasonable accommodation is limiting the amount of pounds that they lift or how many Mm -hmm. times they have to bend. And I have to write that out and be very specific. So the bottom line is for really as on an individual basis, each physician needs to talk with the patient and see what is reasonable, send those things in, and they're fluid. If you realize you need more reasonable accommodations, it is your right to request them. If you need less, hey, that's great. You can adjust it that way too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're, you're taking a very, very proactive approach in terms of accommodations and advocating with and, and on behalf of your patients. Do you find that's pretty common in the field? To be an advocate? Yeah, to that extent, yeah. Probably not as much as it should be. 
One of my main reasons for becoming a nephrologist was to be an advocate. When mm-hmm. I was doing my dual residency, I did internal medicine and pediatrics and later became board certified in both of those, internal medicine and pediatrics. Then I further went on to do a fellowship at Emory where I became a board certified nephrologist. And what drove me to go into nephrology, because that was not my original plan actually, was when I went to the dialysis centers where you had the people who were hooked up to machines, I saw that the majority of the people were Black people and Latino Mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. But then when I went to the transplant centers where people were getting the gift of life, I saw that the majority of people were non-Black. And I'm like, wait a minute, there's a disconnect. Mm -hmm. There's Mm -hmm. a disconnect. And I realized that it had everything to do with advocacy, education, and understanding the importance of prevention. Diabetes and high blood pressure, again, the top two causes of kidney failure. Well, if you don't know that, and if you don't have a primary care physician telling you that, or if you can't afford the health care, then you may have diabetes and high blood pressure end up on dialysis. And then if you don't understand the importance of a transplant, then you won't get that life-saving gift of life. And so probably most people are not as gung-ho as being an advocate as I mm-hmm. am but it is my mission. And I don't just talk to patients. I actually have given conferences where primary care physicians meet. And I make sure that I mention the advocacy piece because sometimes even you'll have physicians who walk into a patient's room and they'll have a certain bias that they may not know that they have. And they'll see, for example, it may be a patient and you know he hasn't taken his proper medications or he's missed a bunch of appointments. And so they assume that that patient will be a bad transplant candidate. But if mm-hmm. you dig deeper, especially if it's someone who has a socioeconomic challenge mm-hmm. or maybe someone, they may be missing appointments because they can't afford to miss their job. They may yeah. not be taking their medications because they can't afford them. Yet now they've been blocked from being referred for a kidney transplant. The patient needs someone to advocate for them instead of judging them. And so that's the part that I play. And I speak quite frequently to other physicians who can be advocates as well. But if you don't understand that a problem exists, then you can't solve it. And so I try to ring the bell and be that squeaky mm-hmm. wheel to get the oil mm-hmm. to let people know that the disparity and the health gap is a real issue. I read a book a while ago. It was called How, How to Speak with Your Doctor. So along those lines, what kind of advice would you give a patient uh, who may be experiencing some difficulty, say, on the job with getting the accommodations they need? How would you how would you recommend they go about approaching their nephrologist and having that conversation? Well, for one, don't be intimidated by your doctor. Mm-hmm. As physicians, we're often on the clock and you know, big brother is watching. And so yep. many physicians will speak quickly, use terms that are not layman's terms use that body language where they're kind of reaching for the door, like, okay, well, that's it. Okay. I'll see you in three months. And they'll do everything to get out of that room so they can stay on the clock. But as a physician, as a patient, you have to not be intimidated, write your questions down ahead of time and be clear about what a visit is about. Now, if you're going in because you have I don't know, an itching eye, then no, at that visit, your physician may not have time to talk about everything, but you can schedule an appointment specifically for, hey, I need help advocating for myself and getting reasonable accommodations at work. And so you can actually go in and you know you'll have the full 10 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever time is allotted to talk about that. So mm-hmm. patients need to be their own advocates. Don't be intimidated. Write your questions down 
and understand that you must stand up for yourself, even to your positions. And so they can mm-hmm. help you to advocate. Right, right. That, that's great advice. In fact, uh, that's something I've, I've learned to do over the last year or so going in to see for my uh, transplant clinic is to write those questions down. Uh, because if you don't write those down, uh, you may very well forget them. Oh, and yes. <laughs> so, so you may not have another up, up in, for another month or three months or even six months to ask that question again. So, but, but that's, that's great advice. We, we touched a little, little bit, well, actually, on this issue, and that is the intersectionality of race, ethnicity, age, socioeconomic status, gender, and the impact on, and I also probably want to add to that, rural versus urban. I'm, I'm sure you probably get some patients from rural areas. What the impact on the quality of treatment, um, quality of treatment for patients receive? In terms of uh, in terms of those different factors and what can be done to ensure that there's more equal access and non-discrimination. Oh my goodness, the impact of all of those things, huge, huge, huge. The race, for example, cultural, high blood pressure. If you look at some of the risk factors for high blood pressure, you're going to see a high salt diet or a high sodium diet, mm-hmm. right? Well, let's just take culturally certain cultures such as my culture the black culture where soul food is mm-hmm. really in the loving and enjoying of the same food that your grandma cooked and a lot of that food traditionally has high salt or mm-hmm. has a lot of pork things that can lead to high blood pressure now there are reasons that I could get into as far as the history of why certain foods were chosen um and, and it had a lot to do with their survival right if you're someone who did not have access if you were an enslaved person and you're grabbing whatever food you can then you might be eating the intestines or the chitterlings mm-hmm. or ears and mm-hmm. you don't have a refrigerator so you're salting them salting them high sodium so there's a lot of tradition and very intellectual reasoning behind a lot of the foods that we now call soul food, traditional soul food. Mm -hmm. Well, if you go into a physician and you have high blood pressure and you're a black person who's been raised on soul food, and the first thing that physician does is say, why are you eating all that trash? That food's not good for you. All that Mm -hmm. salty meat, that food is bad. Well, now you've insulted a person's culture before Mm -hmm. you even got to meet them. Mm -hmm. And what then happens? You've lost the trust of the patient and that patient, because of their culture and their love for their own culture, is not going to trust you. So you've knocked down, you've created a barrier that's very difficult to knock down. And so that's just one way that race and cultural insensitivity can be a barrier. So what I talk to my colleagues about, because they're they're doing it a lot of times out out of love and compassion. And yes, they're right. The high salty food is bad. That's what's causing you to have the high blood pressure. But it's the way that you do it. You can't walk in and insult someone's grandma and then expect them to listen to you for health care. So that's that's one way. Gender. A lot of people, my female patients, like to wear capes like they're superwomen. They'll make sure that their parents are taken care of, their spouses, their children, the person down the street. But when it comes to taking care of themselves, a lot of my ladies just don't have time. So what happens? They end up having the high blood pressure, the diabetes, the kidney disease. And while they've made everyone else's appointments and taken them to their appointments, they don't take care of themselves. And so getting rid of the gender stereotypes that the lady just has to be the nice little caretaker. She can be the caretaker. Okay, we can keep that tradition. But 
she must take care of herself as well. And so I stress to my caretakers and, and men as well, but just mm-hmm. kind of in the, the gender stereotypes, I find that a lot of the ladies are the nurturing caretakers. And I say, you know, if you, if you don't take care of yourself, you will not be around to take care of anyone else. Self-care is not selfish. And so that's one of the ways I try to knock down the gender. But th- there are many, many different barriers when it comes to race, to gender, even to with... Uh, it gets really, really deep, but I spend a lot of time talking to patients on how to overcome those barriers so that they can have their healthiest, happiest lives. So it's so important because I think frequently, you know, people will make assumptions, you know, that you're eating these foods because, uh, because you, you like, you know, you, well, you're not really concerned about having a healthy diet, which is not the case at all. Right. Yeah, so, exactly. so I think, and, and also the point in terms of gender, important as, as well. Um, if we could move on to talking about polycystic kidney disease foundation, what they found about one third of the kidney d- transplants in 2020 were, were living donations. And these are donors are often friends or family members or, or those who donate kidney, who will donate a kidney to someone they know. Other living donors give a kidney that is matched to a stranger who needs it. Both types of kidney donors may face resistance or discrimination at work from employers who don't know that a kidney donor who requests medical leave or other workplace accommodations may be protected by federal employment laws, including the ADA. And so it should be noted that there are 19 states that have passed laws to protect living donors. I guess, similar to, to the bill that you talked about, the, the gift of life legislation in Georgia. So if a person chooses to be a, a living kidney donor, what does that process involve? Is it really complicated and scary and dangerous? Or, or is it something where you can really manage that process and have a really successful outcome? Dan, it's definitely something that can be managed and can be processed. The beauty of transplant centers is that not only do they care for the kidney patient, the one who needs the transplant, but they also protect the kidney donor. And so when you are considering giving a kidney transplant, you don't have to sit around and think of all the reasons why you may be rejected or why maybe it's a bad idea because the transplant center will not accept you if they don't think it's safe Mm -hmm. for you, the donor, as well as for the recipient. So you go through a a series of tests. Yes, you, you know, they make sure that you're physically healthy enough, that you don't have lupus, that you don't have diabetes. They screen you for cancer, all of those things physically, but they also screen you mentally. You're required mm-hmm. to see a mental health care provider or a psychiatrist and say you're someone, and I've had this to happen with some patients, you, you, you're a perfect match for your, you know, your living recipient, you're healthy, you don't have cancer, but you just kind of felt pressured and you really didn't want to do it. Well, the psychiatrist or the mental health care provider will detect that and in the recipient, the potential person who will be receiving your kidney will never know the reason that you weren't a match. They'll just know you know what? They went through the process. They weren't a match. They won't know it's because you kind of got scared or you got cold feet. My point Mm -hmm. is, if you want to be a donor, you're protected all the way. All of your information is private. And whether it's because it wasn't a blood type match or because mentally you just weren't ready, you were stressed, the other person won't know the reason, either you're a match or you're not. And so, you know, you really need to trust the transplant center that they're protecting you, the donor, not just the person receiving the kidney. Mm-hmm, 
In fact, there was uh, at UAB, and, and they may have that at similar uh, transplant centers around the country. They actually had a program, a series of, of, of a series of classes about how you can go about uh, asking somebody to no, donate a kidney, which isn't. It's not something easy to do. You know, it's it's not easy just to go up to somebody and ask them, you know, to, to donate their kidney. Right. So they have an entire series of classes, and, and I imagine this is happening in, in other places. But we learn so much from that class. Even if you don't have a live donor, you still learn so much. But one thing I did learn, though, was that if you're a kidney donor, that and at some point down the road, you need a kidney donation yourself you'll move up to the top of the list is what yes. I've been, what we were told. So, so really it's uh, that even lowers the risk even further, I think for an individual to, who might be considering donating their kidney. And that's definitely something that needs to be shared for people to know. And with the National Kidney Foundation, we all also have something called Big Ask, Big Give. And we have programs where we help to guide people through the process of asking for that gift of life. So yes, there are all kinds of resources. Dr. Frieda, let's talk a little bit about another type of discrimination. And this is a type of discrimination against donors who may face the same types of discrimination that kidney disease patients face. Like persons with kidney disease, kidney donors are sometimes charged more for life or health insurance premiums or denied medical leave for other accommodations they need in recovery from transplant surgery. Kidney patients and donors have also been fired when they request accommodations to take leave for medical care or when they donate a kidney. So what are organizations like the National Kidney Foundation doing to prevent this type of discrimination? Yes, so the National Kidney Foundation, and I did get a chance to be a part of that legislation here in Georgia where we go in and we actually lobby and give the reasons on why there should be no discrimination. You know, we give statistics on how well patients who are living donors do after they give the kidney. When you give a kidney, you're not giving up half your kidney function. The other kidney bulks up and does the work of two kidneys. So we provide education. And again, we were able to get that bill, the Giving the Gift of Life Act passed here in Georgia to protect against discrimination. So really it's going to take just an act of legislation and education. And that's what organizations like the National Kidney Foundation and other organizations do. We provide the education and we try to get things to happen. Right here, we have it on a state level, but certainly, certainly it would be appropriate to be federal for there to be protection of people who are trying to give the gift of life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Dr. Frieda, is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap this up? I just want to say that I'm very excited to have had this conversation because that's really what it takes, having the conversation, getting the education out there. And I hope that people listening will share this with the people they care about. Because if you don't know that the problem exists, if you don't know about CKD, chronic kidney disease, everything that's out there on what you can do as an advocate, how you can be a living donor. If you don't know about it, then you can't act and help, you know, to increase the, the health in, in people in general and help to prevent and cure kidney disease. And so I'm really excited. I want people to be sure to go out, educate themselves. Again, please read my book, Under Pressure, A Guide to Controlling High Blood Pressure. It's available on Amazon. And I offer a resource on my YouTube channel, 
Dr. Dot Frida, where we have over a half a million subscribers, where I talk about not only kidney disease, but I talk about health advocacy. I talk about infectious disease and I use all of my certifications, internal medicine, pediatrics, nephrology, hypertension, in order to give people the power to advocate for themselves and so that they can live their healthiest, happiest lives. Dr. Frida, I know a lot of our listeners today would like to learn more about about your work. Uh, What is your website? My website is www.drfrida.com. That's D-R-F-R-I-T, as in take care of yourself, A.com. And there you'll be able to see my various national news appearances. You'll be able to see community service that I do in advocacy toward kidney disease and other health conditions. Also, I have a podcast the Healthy Happy Life podcast with Dr. Frida, where I do more work where I educate people about diseases and more importantly, how to prevent and to take care of diseases and themselves and in loved ones. Well, I would encourage everybody who's uh, listening today to, to go to Dr. Frida's website and learn more. I learned so much from you today and uh, I really do appreciate you being with us. And so it's it, it really has been a privilege and an honor I think, to be with you, Dr. Frida. And I know I'm going to be spending a little bit more time on your website and learning more about your podcast. And and I want to encourage everybody else to do the same because you just bring so much. And I've really enjoyed this conversation. And it's 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 been a real pleasure. It's been my pleasure as well. Thank you so much for having me. And at this time, what I'd like to do is turn it over to Barry. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Dr. Frida. What a great conversation. So generous with your time. I appreciate it. Listeners, you can access all ADA Live episodes with archived audio, accessible transcripts, and resources on our website at adalive.org. You can listen to ADA Live on the SoundCloud channel at soundcloud.com forward slash ADA Live. You can download ADA Live to your mobile device. Go to your podcast app and search for ADA Live. If you have questions about the Americans with Disabilities Act, you can use our online form anytime at adalive.org, or you can contact your regional ADA center at 1-800-949-4232. Those calls are free and they're confidential. ADA Live is a program of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, in a collaboration with the Disability Inclusive Employment Policy Rehabilitation Research and Training Center. Our producer is Celestia Razda with Cherie Hoffman, Mary Mortar, Marsha Schwanke, Chase Coleman, and me, I'm Barry Whaley. Our music is from Four Wheel City, the movement for improvement. We'll see you next episode. Stores, real city, they don't want us here.